dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. I'm very pleased to have with us a man who has served with great distinction in a variety of capacities in various phases of this war for the free world. His name is Colonel Grant Newsom, United States Marine Corps retired. In addition to having served his country with distinction in the uniform of the U.S. Marine. He has also been a foreign service officer. He has also been involved in international business, particularly in uh, the Asian theater. He has been associated with, I'm very proud to say, of late, the Center for Security Policy as a senior fellow. He's also a research fellow at the Japan Forum for Strategic Studies and uh, a great resource. We're always delighted to have him with us. Grant Newsom, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. I have so much to talk with you about. I hardly know where to begin, but let me start with Afghanistan. It's uh, top of mind for a lot of us, especially as we're witnessing this, uh, well, catastrophe really unfold. Um, talk a little bit about it from the perspective, Grant, if you would, of not only somebody who has been intimately involved with military affairs for most of your professional life, uh, what this means for Afghanistan itself and our vital security concerns there, as well as uh, for the region. It's a disaster. We always have to start with that. And it's a, if you were to put it on a scale, say one to 10, with 10 being the worst, this is about a 20. Uh, in terms of what's going to happen to Afghanistan, it's obviously come under the control of a just ruthless, murderous um, gang of uh, religious fundamentalists. And, well, that's what it is. And unfortunately, this is a, sort of on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. This is a thoroughgoing defeat of the United States. Um, so Afghanistan has been left to the tender mercies of these people, and many people who were counting on us, people who helped us, many people who just wanted to have the stability that uh, that Afghanistan had for sort of some years uh, and did not want the Taliban to come back, well, they're left to the, the Taliban's uh, control now. Uh, so this is just a humanitarian catastrophe of the worst order, and it's going to happen to people who thought they could count on the United States. Um, China, of course, is going to is already making pay of what's happened, and they'll be insinuating themselves into Afghanistan, particularly to get the uh, the minerals. And they will also they'll have good enough relations with the Taliban, partly because China's been supporting them uh, with weapons and money since the 1990s and throughout the war when we were there. Uh, and they will have this nice access all the way to Iran, where China's best you know, new best friends, the Iranians, are. So it looks pretty good from a geopolitical standpoint. For the the Chinese uh, at the moment, um, and this is you know it's um 
really is something of global importance. It's not just this localized setback for the United States, but this is something that will have ripple effects felt in all corners of the world. I, I want to pick up on that point with respect particularly to China and the Pacific, but before I do, just a, a further thought on Afghanistan. In addition to the humanitarian crisis there and, and uh, the abandonment of uh, allies uh, such as we've had in the country and the implications of all of that for our interest in Afghanistan and its immediate surroundings. We also have the problem that such people as we are pulling out of there, uh, Afghans that we have been told are special uh, visa applicants uh, that are interpreters or others who have served our country. It turns out, uh, according to one report I've seen, that 100 out of 7,000 Afghans who've been processed in uh, Qatar have actually um, been identified by our intelligence agencies as people on watch lists. Um, Grant, talk just a little bit about what it implies if we are going to have people who are brought into our country, put on military installations, at least initially, um, who may well be of the jihadist stripe themselves. Well, it inserts um, people who want to kill us and do commit acts, if you think of the 9-11 the attacks and the subsequent terrorist attack in the United States around the, and in Europe in particular, you've suddenly let them into the U.S. You've given them access. And the these aren't just Taliban. These aren't really Taliban, actually. These are the committed uh, terrorists. Um, and they that's what they think about. That's They go about their daily life thinking about how they can uh, hurt America, hurt the, the Western world, the Christians, etc. And that's what they do. So this for them, this was a, an opportunity to get into the United, get some people into the United States. And it's good that our people are on the ball enough to have spotted this. It would be nice if they would take them off the planes and put them somewhere else. Um, but but that is Gitmo comes to mind, but they're in the process of closing that too, as yeah. I understand it. Yeah. And but just to put this in perspective, Grant, um, you know, let's say it's a hundred, um, and maybe that's the full extent of it. I think it unlikely, but um, nineteen hijackers, lest we forget, twenty years ago, uh, did incalculable damage to this country and cost us. Um, well, trillions for sure. And the likelihood that um, that will be the agenda of at least some of those folks migrating into this country, perhaps unvetted, perhaps inadequately vetted at least, um, is a very real concern. Let me switch again quickly if I can, because we've got more to talk about than we've got time with you, Grant Newsom, uh, to China's ambitions in the Far East and whether they will be emboldened not only in Afghanistan, and with respect to their efforts to dominate um, Central Asia and you know other parts of um, the Euro-Asian landmass, but specifically that they will be pursuing much more aggressively, even than they have of late, perhaps even kinetically, as they say, um, their determination to force the acquisition of Taiwan. Uh, yes, the Chinese objective is to dominate Asia. It's to drive the Americans out of the region and to have China be the, the country that calls the shots and everybody quake uh, before them. And Afghanistan has given them a psychological boost. Yeah. And there's a, they smell weakness. They smell confusion on the part of the Americans. Uh, so this, it, 
encourages them. It gives them more motivation. And they are, and they already had plenty of that to start with. So there's a sense that the Americans are on, not just on the back foot or on the mat. And you will see the Chinese continuing their already impressive military buildup that can give the Americans trouble uh, even now and a lot of trouble. Uh, and their political warfare campaign is continuing. Uh, that has psychological, political, economic components to it. And they feel that they've got the, the wind in their sails. And they are going to get more aggressive against us, but particularly against our friends and will present us with a situation, I think, before too long where they tell the Americans, stand clear uh, unless you want nuclear war. Uh, and the Americans just might back off. So this is as dangerous a time as it has been in my lifetime. Grant, you are, among other things, a valued member of the Committee on the Present Danger, China. And uh, one of our other colleagues in that committee... Jim Fennell was on the program yesterday, and we talked a bit about the steps that the Chinese have taken to establish uh, a vast uh, maritime lift capacity to help enable an invasion of Taiwan, should it come to that. Um, it wouldn't be the only element, of course, but the question is, is this in place now, and is it operational in a way that would enable, perhaps from a standing start, such an effort to be mounted, um, leaving us with very little, if any, warning. And I was struck by a report that I saw recently about cargo ship being used by the Chinese in a recent exercise for troop transport purposes. Uh, again, a demonstration of a capability that uh, could be quite ominous in this context. Your, your thoughts on all of that? Well, they've had the capability for at least the last 10 years. Uh, it's just now that it's getting the recognition that it deserves, and they've improved it in the last decade. And what, what you're talking about, of course, is incorporating civilian ships, civilian transport into a, an invasion or an attack plan against Taiwan. And that has been part of Chinese operational doctrine for a long, long time, for decades. Uh, but they have really have, to their credit, have just gotten better and better at it. So you, what they can use are, say, ferries, amphibious ships, um, the roll-on, roll-on vessels, and can incorporate those into their military, and it exponentially increases your uh, your resources, your your the the combat power you need, and they're they're good at it, and they're just getting better and better at it. If they have now got a capacity in all of these areas, and and by the way, missiles aimed at Taiwan among their kit to go with very little, if any, advanced notice to us. Um, indicators and warnings, as they call it in the business. Would you say that the Chinese may feel so bold by what they've been witnessing of late? And not least, let's be clear, the deep compromise of so many people from the president on down in senior positions of the U.S. government, that they would actually take the step of launching an invasion without having done sort of a dress rehearsal to ensure all of this really works out, would they would they risk everything on a pretty hard target without some further preparation of that kind? In your estimation, Grant Newsom? Yeah, well, I think they are capable of a, an assault from a standing start. Now, that's a, people argue that point, but I think they can. I, I wouldn't underestimate them on this score. I think uh, the Chinese would, of course, prefer to get Taiwan without a fight, and you could see them issuing an ultimatum to the United States, to Taiwan, uh, once again, saying, stand clear. And as you pointed out, there's a, it's a question of will and whether or not a, a U.S. administration 
would actually risk nuclear war over Taiwan. It unfortunately, over the last uh, ten days or so, it's I think there's more doubts that have been that have been raised than in a good long while. Uh, so there's several aspects to it. And once again, Taiwan, uh, China would like to get Taiwan the easy way, uh, but they are. Uh, ready and I think one, you know, can assume they are so willing to to fight uh, to get it without doing a dress rehearsal on you know perhaps uh, outer islands of uh, Taiwan that are close by the Chinese shore. Yes, well, they, they yes they have op- There's a menu of options, and one of them is of course to eat up to get one of the little islands that right off the China of Taiwan that are right off the Chinese mainland. Maybe get an island in the middle of the Taiwan Strait and do that first and intimidate. Uh, the Taiwanese uh, and us um, and everyone else, or they could just go all out on the mainland. So there, say there's it's like a football game where a, a coach has a number of plays he can call, and he, he even he may not know exactly which one uh, he's going to do, but he's prepared for all of those. And that's what we have to be equally prepared to address as well. Let me turn to uh, um, the question of whether or not, in the Chinese eyes, the appearance in the region of Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, has in any way affected their calculations, uh, their sense of the window of opportunity, their correlation of forces, if you will. Um, She talked about um, China in uh, what was billed as a great Indo-Pak vision speech. And among other other things, she called for you know, uh, China to cease its uh, behavior that is inconsistent with, as she put it, I think, the rules-based order. Um, I'm not quite sure what to make of that as a turn of phrase, but um, what do you think the Chinese are making of it? And more to the point, you know, what what, uh, credibility she brings to all of this? Um, I would say the Chinese are sort of thinking, um, you know, is is that all you got? You know, if you're just going to come and tell us we're bad guys, uh, and and that you're committed to Asia, if that's all you're going to say, well, okay, that's fine. So the, the Chinese Navy still can outnumber the Americans in the South China Sea by at least 10 ships to one. America doesn't have a shipbuilding plan to rebuild its Navy. It's cutting, it's effectively cutting its defense spending. Its priorities are uh, inward and, and financially irresponsible. Uh, so the vice president can go there and say, America's back, America's committed, uh, but I don't really think anyone in the region believes her all that much. And, and, uh, and I'm not saying this with any... And those are our friends. As Americans, as Americans, we want every administration to succeed. We want the country to succeed. Um, but this, I would have to say, is simply not convincing. It is not going to convince the Chinese, and it is not going to convince uh, our allies, our partners down there. They hope for the best, and they hope America might wake up and sort of get off the mat. But I think they've got some doubts, and it's up to the U.S. government, this administration, uh, to collect itself and get its wits together and convince people that America is indeed going to defend itself and the concept of human freedom. Yeah. Amen. Um, I was struck by a a tell in that regard. Um, I'm told that the Vietnamese with whom Kamala Harris has been meeting, of course, the day to day, have indicated that they don't think this is the time to, quote, poke the dragon, unquote. And uh, if this isn't the time, uh, it's almost certainly the case that there will be less and less attractive uh, times to come and uh, less and less capability, perhaps, on the part of uh, the rest of us to uh, not simply provoke the Chinese, but uh, actively oppose what they're doing. 
again, at the expense of freedom uh, throughout that region. Not that there's a whole lot of it in Vietnam, let me be clear, but uh, there is some still elsewhere, and uh, we mustn't let it become further endangered. Lastly, speaking of which, um, Grant Newsom, um, you've spent a lot of time focused on South Korea and the policies of the Moon Jae-in regime there um, that are increasingly aligning that government with North Korea on the one hand and China on the other. Uh, talk a little bit about where that stands at the moment um, and evidence that there are very aggressive influence operations being mounted in our own country to try to shape our perceptions of what's going on in a way that uh, could be quite detrimental to our position in that country, uh, South Korea that is, um, and uh, in East Asia more generally. Uh, yes. Well, regarding South Korea, um, and it doesn't get the attention it deserves, um, but what you have is a extreme leftist radical administration in South Korea, the Moon Jae-in administration. Uh, these are guys who've been radicals for 40 years at least, and their objective is to get the Americans off the peninsula, to somehow unify the Korean peninsula, and under really one-party rule, which is Moon's party, to align South Korea with China. And this, they've been clear about this and what they've said. And yet what you hear so always from officialdom in America and the academic class and commentariat is rock solid relationship. The U.S. rock alliance has never been stronger. But if you give it just some ex rudimentary examination, even uh, you'll see that it is troubled and it is potentially collapsible. And that deserves to, we really need to plan for that and do something about it because fortunately in South Korea, most people don't want to end the alliance. But we have seen before what a committed group of radicals who somehow find themselves, say, in the local equivalent of the White House, how they can actually move a, a country where most people don't want to go. And unfortunately, there has been a sort of an unwillingness on the part of people who should know better on the U.S. side to recognize the Moon regime and South Korean leftists for what they are and to really to bolster uh, the people who, who see things differently there. And they, South Koreans have done a very good job, actually, of buying off many of the think tanks and the, the so-called commentariat and even the political class uh, in Washington, D.C. This is a subject to which we will return both with you, Grant Newsom, and our colleague Lawrence Peck, who has been making a concerted effort to study and expose these kinds of influence operations. Um, they are very detrimental, I think, to our security interests. Uh, desperately need more attention, as you say. Thank you for your attention to all of these matters and for sharing it with us so generously. We appreciate what you do, both for the Center for Security Policy and at the Japan Forum for Strategic Studies. I know you'll keep it up and look forward to having you back soon. Next up, we will speak with David Wormser. We'll talk about other aspects of the well, collateral damage from Afghanistan in the Middle East. That and more. Straight ahead. Visit us at facebook.com slash securefreedom with Frank Gaffney.